Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 224 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas, and I'm excited to talk about my topic today. We're going to be talking about building towards a breakthrough race. In late January, I did an episode 219 on Back to the Basics, which is how do you reground yourself in the fundamentals of training. And now I'm going to be taking that conversation and extending it to once you've regrounded yourself into the basics of training, which includes all the things I talked about in that episode, leading off with purpose and consistency, then how do you build towards a breakthrough? For some of you, this might involve a big goal like qualifying for Boston. For others of you, it may involve hitting a certain time goal. For some, it may be about going after a PR. But the question here is that we're going to answer is, what does it take to build towards a breakthrough? What are the things you can optimize around the edges of your training in order to get that next five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes to smash that goal that you might have been chasing for a while? So we'll talk about that in the main conversation. I've got a couple of quick intro items. First of all, I just saw today as I record this that Desiree Linden has announced that she's going to be going for the 50K world record later in April in Oregon on a closed course. And she's going to have a couple of pacers for that, trying to break the current world record set by Allie Dixon of 307 and change, which means that she's going to have to average faster than 602 pace per mile for 50k for those that don't know the exact translation that's just over 31 miles worth of running for des in her first 50k apparently this replaces the two oceans ultra marathon which she was going to run in south africa that got postponed or canceled because of the ongoing pandemic and so she's got this on tap instead going for this 50k world record Averaging about six minute pace for her seems to be pretty doable, I would think, on a flat road course. And although I'm sure it's it's something that she's scared about in dealing with those final five or so miles post marathon distance, I'm sure this feels like something that she can really get after. And I think if I were a betting person, knowing Des and knowing what I know now about this target for her, I would say that she's going to be able to do it, assuming that she gets good weather. And usually Oregon in April, you can pretty much count on pretty good weather for that. So exciting for Des. I love the fact that she's mixing it up. She's got the support of her sponsors and her agent, Josh Cox, who is putting this together for her. So that's one announcement. Another announcement I wanted to spend a little bit more time on is this announcement that came last week that the Boston Marathon has decided to have a virtual race in October that will happen concurrently with their in-person race, which is currently scheduled for October 11th. This virtual race will have up to 70,000 participants and anyone can register for it, not just those who have qualified for Boston. So anybody can complete the 2021 virtual Boston Marathon and earn a unicorn medal. This will be the 125th edition of the Boston Marathon as the race was started in 1897. Now, on the surface, when I saw this announcement, it didn't surprise me because London the London Marathon has already announced that they're shooting for 50,000 runners for their virtual race, which will happen in October as well on the weekend prior to Boston. And so they've already announced that they're shooting for 50,000 virtual participants in addition to their live in-person race happening on October 3rd. And so it doesn't surprise me. And when I saw the initial headline come through, it wasn't surprising to me that Boston would try to do the same thing to try to recoup perhaps some of the financial losses that they suffered in 2020 and also to give as many people as possible an opportunity to experience that experience. I was surprised to see as I was browsing Twitter 
later in that day on the announcement day that there was a bit of an uproar about this decision by the BAA to invite people to the virtual Boston that had not qualified. And if you go to the Facebook page for the Boston Marathon, and in particular, if you look at the comments under the thread where they announced this virtual opportunity, there is quite a lot of uproar from presumably Boston Marathon qualifiers that they're allowing anyone, whether you've qualified or not, to experience this virtual race and to earn a unicorn medal. And that, to be honest, initially surprised me, but I guess as I dug in, it, it doesn't surprise me that much as, as people are used to the exclusivity that comes with the Boston Marathon. From my perspective, however, I would encourage all runners, especially those qualified for the Boston Marathon who might be upset about this decision, to just take a deep breath and to recognize the real purpose and meaning of the Boston Marathon. Because personally, I have no problem with them opening the virtual experience and experience up to all out to all runners, because to me that embodies really the founding principles of Boston. And if you have ever seen the Boston Marathon documentary called Boston, which you can, I believe, still find out there on streaming, it gives you better context as to the full history of the race and including the history of the race prior to the qualifying standards being put into place. Because I think the one thing that people forget since we live in this paradigm where you have to qualify for Boston today, is that the race in its 125-year history had 73 years without qualifying standards up and until 1970 when they introduced qualifying standards for the first time. And then the race has had 52 years with the qualifying standards. And it really wasn't until 1980 that the qualifying standards started to look like you see them today with the stratification by gender as well as by age. That didn't really come until the 1980s. And that first year, 1970, they introduced those qualifying standards in order to limit the field size because the field had grown to over 1,600 runners and they were concerned that that was too many in order to have a good experience for everybody. And they wanted to get that number down to about a thousand runners. And so the very first year that they had a qualifying standard, it was four hours across the board, regardless of age, four hours to get into the race. That shift in requiring a four hour marathon in order to get in Boston limited the field to about 1300 runners. And then the following year in 71, they dropped the standard to 330 Again, all runners, all ages, across the board, 3.30 to get in. And then it started to iterate from there where they added a women's standard. And then they started to add a master standard. And then eventually in the 80s, you started to see the stratification across gender and age like we see today. So the reason qualifying standards were introduced in the first place was in order to limit the field size so that it could be manageable. And really today, that is still true, although there is certainly this double meaning that Boston has developed, which is that it's this badge of honor, this standard for the amateur runner to achieve that means that they've somehow made it in our sport. And so I'll remind people that, again, qualifying standards haven't always been in place. And by the way, when they introduced the qualifying standards in 1970, there was quite a bit of backlash about that because it wasn't traditional and because the race had traditionally been the what they called the people's race or a race that anybody could do regardless of their speed or ability. So we have a race that previously didn't have qualifying standards. We have a race in Boston that has represented so many things in terms of human accomplishment back to 1897, so many great stories in the history of the race that it hasn't been about the separating those that are worthy from those that aren't worthy 
of the Boston Marathon. It's not about that. It's not about, in my opinion, elitism or exclusivity. It is rather about celebrating the sport of running and also celebrating doing the best that you can do. Now, qualifying standards were introduced in 1970 to help limit the field size. And certainly that has created a new ethos and culture around the race that has existed since 1970. But I want to remind people that is not an excuse or a reason to turn this into a debate about the haves and have-nots. I will say when I, when I go to a Boston Marathon, the overwhelming feeling is one of empowerment and celebrating the best that running can bring out in people and celebrating every individual out there doing something big for themselves, whatever their background might be. Now, there are nooks and crannies of that weekend that I've always hated, which is those that see it as something elitist or something that's exclusive in a way that isn't with isn't filled with humility. Because I think if you approach the Boston Marathon and you've earned that qualifier on that weekend, then you should be approaching the race, the experience, other competitors, the fans, those that aren't there with absolute humility that it is an honor to be there. And yes, you've earned it, but that doesn't make you special in a way that makes you better than someone. It makes you special because you did something big for yourself. You overcame obstacles in your own space and world that allowed you to triumph in that way and celebrate that accomplishment in that way. It's not about you being better than others. It's about you being the best version of yourself. That to me is what Boston is about. And so when we take this new virtual race concept and we think about the history of the race and what it represents, and we think about the history of qualifying and what that has meant. Traditionally, qualifying has been about, and again, started in the 70s, limiting the field size to a manageable field size. That started out at about 1,000 runners back in 70. They were trying to narrow the field to, and now, of course, it's closer to 30,000 runners. But those standards are now in place to keep that field size manageable. And so if you have, in the case of a virtual race, no need to manage the field size because anybody can do it anywhere, then suddenly to me that opens it up again to an opportunity for it to be the people's race truly. And in this day and age, a a race that both men and women can accomplish because back before qualifying standards, only men could do it. So it's an opportunity to celebrate that heritage of this race as the people's race so that anybody can participate in one form or another, whether they be doing it virtually from home or potentially those that might be there doing it in person in October. And so that to me, or those reasons to me, are the reasons why people need to relax, take a breath, and really to celebrate this opportunity to make the race more inclusive, to give more people a taste of what this is all about and pushing themselves to be their best version of themselves because that really is what Boston Boston embodies and it's not about being better than others. It's not about ex- exclusivity. It's not about elitism. That, to me, is the dark side of what sometimes Boston can be that needs to be taken out expunged from the experience altogether. And if we can do that, and if we can do it in this way, through a virtual experience that makes it more inclusive, then I say more power to the race and to those that participate. Now, some will ask, well, what does this mean for future races? Will there always be a virtual Boston? We will see. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and to see what the demand is for these types of events to be done virtually after the pandemic ends. You know, obviously you have London already doing it, you have Boston doing it as well. Does this mean this will be something you can do every single year? And then it might become some sort of arms race for who can have the best swag or the best medal that people might covet. We'll see. But to me, that decision, I I leave firmly in the hands of the race and in the hands of those that might want 
to have that type of experience. It would not be for me personally to do a virtual marathon, but I totally understand why that would be appealing for some to be able to participate in some way. And I also understand why why races would want to have that opportunity to extend their brand and extend potentially the money that they can make from the race that they can then reinvest in a better experience. You know, some people have called this a money grab by the BAA. I wouldn't characterize it as such. The BAA is a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to extending our sport, extending the opportunities provided by our sport. And so if they're making more money, they're going to be reinvesting it back in the sport in some way, whether that be through the Boston Marathon itself or through other races that they can put on or through support that they can provide to the various programs that they support. So I've got no problem with that because that means to me that there's more money to invest in growing our sport, which could never be a bad thing, especially from an organization like the BAA, who has always proven to be a good steward of our sport. So that's my take. For those that are upset about the virtual marathon in Boston, please take a breath, understand the history, understand what's trying to be accomplished here, and be okay with allowing others to celebrate their accomplishments in our sport in that way. I don't think it takes away anything from those that qualify and who are able to do it there in person. All right. So that's my soapbox moment talking about the Boston Marathon. Let's talk about today's topic, which is how do I build to the next breakthrough, which for some of you that might be going after a Boston qualifier. So I've got seven different points that I want to cover here. Three of these actually fall more on the mental side of things. But before we get into it, I wanted to make one general overarching comment, which is this idea that I think oftentimes people think they have to do big things, make big changes in order to build towards breakthroughs. When I'm here to tell you as a coach, especially in the sport of running, that it's not about big changes. It's actually about small, subtle things little decisions built on a big foundation that will help you get there over time. There's no magic formula. There's no shortcuts. There's no hacks. It's simply about putting one foot one foot in front of another consistently day in and day out. Now, the things that we'll talk about in this episode are all a part of that path, but you can't take shortcuts. You can't speed things up. And so when I talk about these concepts, I'm not giving you necessarily any earth-shadowing information. What I'm talking about is once you've established that foundation following the basics that I've discussed in episode 219, these are some tweaks on the margin that you can make and perhaps maybe some fundamental ways of thinking about your training that extend beyond what I talked about in episode 219 that will help you get there over time. And so again, three things more mental, four things that are more training oriented and specific to that. And so let's go through them. The first one I'm picking off back, piggybacking off what I, I just said is that I want you to have a goal that might be a time goal, could be a Boston qualifier, could be breaking four hours and 30 minutes in the marathon, could be breaking two hours in the half marathon, whatever it may be. Have your goal, but also bring a process orientation to your training, a process orientation to your training. It's about the journey. And so what does this look like? I will tell you a quick story about the great Hank Aaron who passed sadly already this year. He was the greatest and probably still is considered the greatest home run hitter of all time in Major League Baseball. Now his record has been taken for the most home runs ever by a Major League Baseball player in their career, but that was taken in the steroid era. So there are many that still give Hank Aaron credit for being the best clean home run hitter in Major League Baseball history. 
And his thing was he had a long career and he would hit over 40 home runs every single year, year in and year out. He would do it consistently. And so he was asked during his career, he was asked a question, hey, Hank, what do you do in order to hit 40 home runs a year? Do you set that goal? Do you explicitly think about how many home runs you want to hit and somehow that manifests these home runs year in and year out? And his response, and I'm paraphrasing it, but his response was, nope, I don't actually worry about the total number of home runs that I'm going to hit. I don't think about that. What I think about is the process by which I will achieve those home runs. And so for him, it he would set goals around the amount of time that he would spend in batting practice, the amount of time he would spend prepping his craft, the amount of time he would spend studying opposing pitchers so that he would, could, could be ready to know where they might be throwing at him. And so that did, then those things, those processes would ultimately manifest on the field in the form of home runs. So for him, it wasn't about hitting the home runs. It was about the process to hit the home runs. And I think the same is true in our sport of running. Certainly, you want to keep those goals out there in mind as to what you want to accomplish. But once you have that goal in mind, then it's a question of, okay, what's the process that's going to get me there? What's the process that's going to get me there? And for that part of the process or equation, what I would say is I want you to take that process and break it down into the key elements for you. We often say around rogue, when you have a goal or when you have a race that you're targeting, we ask ourselves, well, what does that race require? What does the goal in front of me require? What am I going to need to do to accomplish it? And then that's when the answer becomes your process. And for each athlete, it's going to be different. So I can't give you a prescription. You can pull ideas from this podcast. You can pull ideas from episode 219. You can pull ideas from your experience and the lessons so far in your journey. But what are those things that you're going to need to do and focus on in order to get this goal? And it could be about running certain miles per week. It could be about accomplishing certain things in workouts. It could be about executing on strength two times a week over the course of the training cycle. It could be about how slowly you run your recovery runs per my last episode so that you can then put the work you need to into the quality work and into those harder long runs. So what are the elements of the process? And I would say break that then down into the four or five key executional elements that you need to focus on based on what you know about yourself and based on what you've learned from people like me, what are those things that you need to focus on so you can accomplish them in the course of your training? And then track it. Then track it. I'm a big fan of Colleen Quigley as a steepler, and she's been on my podcast. One of the things that she does is called bullet journaling, which is a way to basically track habits so that you could write down those four or five things and then basically check the box each day that you accomplish it so that you get a quick visual on whether or not you're achieving the process element of the equation. And again, it's specific to you and it doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't need doesn't need to be something where you do it 100% every time, but you should be able to achieve and execute on those habits 95 plus percent of the time. So what does this look like? For me, actually, for one training cycle where I was going after a PR, the thing that I found most difficult for me to achieve and get motivated for were the runs I had to do solo, which were the the filler runs, the easy runs in between the hard workouts and the long runs. For the hard workouts in the long runs, I had a group. I had my friends at Rogue. I was getting those done because I had accountability around the team. But when it came to those filler runs, I was struggling with motivation and struggling executing those consistently. And so I made it a part of my process, a part of my goals to get in those filler runs. And so I literally, for that training block, I counted the number of filler runs I had and I created a little mini countdown calendar of those easy runs 
that I needed to complete between that moment starting the cycle and the race itself. And so then I was gradually checking those filler runs off as I got closer to the race and it became a visual that that was associated with a process-oriented goal that helped me achieve my goal for that training cycle. That was an example for me. So it isn't necessarily the things you think about. It could be some of those smaller things that are harder to accomplish, but what is it going to take? What is the process for you to get to your goal? And if you're not sure what that looks like, then I would say consult with somebody. Talk to a coach. You can do one-on-one consults with me, which you can actually buy on the Rogue Running website. You can also talk to a friend who maybe has achieved that goal before and knows you a little bit. But think about it. Think about what those process steps, those process elements are for you to achieve the goal. Write them down and then develop an accountability process for yourself to achieve them. So building to a breakthrough number one here is have a process orientation and execute on that process orientation. Number two, and this again more is on the mental side as we start here, you need to be patient and take a long-term view. You need to be patient and take a long-term view. Oftentimes, I get runners that are typically newer to the sport, but sometimes it happens with the veterans as well, who get in a big hurry to achieve a goal. They get in a big hurry to achieve a goal, and then therefore they might take some shortcuts or might take attempts at it before they're really ready. And I'm here to encourage you that running is a long-term game, something you can do and get better at over the course of decades. And so I want you to, just like I said, take a breath about Boston qualifying, take a breath about the timeline in your head associated with achieving a goal. And look, I understand sometimes there are deadlines for these things. If you're an Olympic trials qualifier or seeking to be an Olympic trials qualifier, then there's a certain deadline to get that in. But absent that type of real deadline, I would encourage you not necessarily to, to, to make artificial deadlines, but rather to build a plan to get to your goal that makes sense without taking shortcuts or rushing it. This often happens in my conversations as a coach, not exclusively, but often happens in the conversations around Boston qualifying, especially. And for those that don't know, or maybe that's not a goal on your radar screen, as it relates to Boston qualifying, you have a registration window typically. Now all of that's thrown out the door right now, but typically you have a registration window that starts in September the year prior to the race happening. So if we were going to have a race here in April of 2021, obviously we're not, but if we were, then that registration process would happen starting in September of 2020. And then the qualifying window for that race would begin a year prior. So from September of 2019, through to basically September of 2020 would be your qualifying window for the 2021 April Boston Marathon if if it were happening as planned. And so if you're trying to qualify for Boston and you get a qualifying time, then that time can come as much as a year and a half away from when you might be able to achieve the race or to, to do the race. And so oftentimes in playing the game of, well, when can I qualify for Boston? I get people thinking, well, I want to shoot for this window because that gets me into this year's race. And instead of thinking that way or thinking that way really about any goal, I want you to instead say, okay, what are the steps I need to accomplish this goal? How do those fit together in a plan that makes sense over time? And then let the timing associated with achieving that goal be driven by that variable and not necessarily by some artificial external deadline like when the Boston qualifying window happens. And 
The reason for that, again, is this idea that you don't want to take shortcuts because when you don't take shortcuts towards a goal, it allows you to have a better chance of achieving it. And one thing I see when people try to take shortcuts or when they try to short circuit the process to get a goal like qualifying for Boston, then it opens up not only more risk associated with achieving that goal when you try, but also it potentially compromises your long-term development towards that goal. So again, instead of taking shortcuts, instead of short-circuiting the process, think about the steps you need in place to achieve that goal. Let that timeline be dictated by the process. And, And then the outcome, the timing of the outcome will take care of itself. Because there's no reason to be in a hurry. Boston's not going anywhere. Races aren't going anywhere. Yes, you're getting older, but I promise you, as someone who's about to be 42 and who coaches athletes that are in their late 60s, you can continue to improve in this sport for a long time if you do things in the right sequence, if you do things the right way. And that helps keep long-term consistency. It helps you achieve your long-term potential. And it also helps prevent you from getting injured along the way because you're not taking those shortcuts. So number two on the path to achieving a breakthrough or building towards a breakthrough is to be patient. Let the timing be dictated by the steps you need to achieve that goal. Assuming again that there's no artificial external boundary. And that will, again, help you achieve that goal with greater odds when you try, but it'll also help you achieve future potential in a greater way that you may not even realize. And so don't rush it. There's no need to rush it. Our sport can be a lifelong journey if you let it be and if you approach it the right way. And so there's no reason to hurry. So that's number two patience. Number one, process orientation. Number two, patience. Number three, resilience. Number three, build resilience. What is resilience? Resilience is the ability to get knocked down and get up again. At least that's my definition. (laughs) Resilience is the ability to get knocked down and get up again and keep going. Because I promise you, as a runner who's committed to this long-term you will get knocked down. It's just the way it works. Progress is not linear. There are peaks, there are valleys, there are ups and downs. And by the way, those valleys often help you achieve higher peaks down the road. And so it's a part of the process. And for runners, it can come in different forms. Sometimes it comes in the form of injury. Sometimes it comes in the form of a bad race for whatever reason, could be weather, could be you didn't sleep that week, could be you had stresses in your life leading up to that race that you didn't expect. It could be a global pandemic got in the way and the race got canceled or turned to virtual. I mean, there are a whole list of things that might happen to you on your journey. And one of the truths is that you can expect it. You can expect it. You're going to struggle with injury. You're going to have challenges. You're going to miss your goal at times and have to turn around, pick yourself up and go for it again. And the beauty of those setbacks are that they, one, make you stronger for the next time you go for it. And number two, often there are lessons embedded in those setbacks that ultimately help you learn something that will help you achieve that goal when it's time. And so if I think back on my injuries in my career, when I've had tough ones like stress fractures, for example, or perhaps sprained ankles that happened on accident when I was going for a a trail race goal at one point, those injuries reveal weaknesses in us. Sometimes they're accidental, but oftentimes they reveal weaknesses in us 
that if you work on those weaknesses and come back from that injury in the right way, then it will make you stronger on the other side. Every injury that you have is a weakness revealed that is an opportunity to address that weakness and to get stronger on the other side so that when you then go for your goal, you're starting at a higher place. And yes, it's hard not to view it as a setback or lost time in training, but I think if you reframe it as an opportunity, as a way to get stronger, as an opportunity to focus on something else, then you have the ability to use that to your advantage on the other side. So that's an example, injury. Another example would be a race that didn't go your right go the right way because of, say, weather, for example. I've had plenty of warm marathons in my day that prevented me from giving from getting my goal. And when I reflect back on those, those races all taught me something. They taught me something one, just because it was another at bat, another chance to go for it in a marathon and to learn from the training associated with that. It's also an opportunity to suffer and build mental resilience, which has served me later in other races and in other opportunities. And so even those races where you don't get it, it helps you in some way build towards, again, that future opportunity to get it. So, yes, when something goes against you, when you get injured, when you have a bad race, it's okay to to feel that, to mourn it, to be sad about it for a period of time. That's okay. That's a normal part of processing any experience. But then, once you've let all of that out and let all of that go, take your lessons from it, get back to work, and keep building. Because those setbacks will come and they will be opportunities if you approach them in the right way. Now, what's a practical way to exercise that muscle of being able to turn a negative into a positive? And I'll give you one specific example, which is to use a gratitude journal or to work on gratitude. And this is mentioned both in Dina Castor's book, Let Your Mind Run, her memoir, but also Kara Goucher has one, a book called Strong, where she specifically talks about the gratitude journal that she used and that helped reframe things in her own training. And the basic idea is that you take the opportunity every day in training to write something positive about the day, no matter how it went. The workout could have gone terrible. You could have missed every split. You could have missed every pace. You could have felt horrible. You could have cut it short. But there's always something positive to pull out of every experience, whether that be a lesson that you learned, whether that be the fact that you just got up and did it and gutted it out anyway if you weren't feeling great, or whatever it may be. There's always something positive to pull out. And you can exercise that every single day. You can exercise that ability every single day by looking at your training and by writing down or thinking about what's a positive from the day. What can I take away? And it's this ability to not dwell in the negative and to instead take the negative and pull out the lessons or pull out the positive that is a muscle. It's like a muscle. It's a mental muscle that takes practice, that takes work. And the better you are at it, the more resilient you will be and the better you will be at taking those challenges and turning them into opportunities that will ultimately get you to that breakthrough. So that's number three, build and practice resilience. And again, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about a word or a concept that's that's vague or that you can't really touch and feel. I'm talking about actually practicing this concept, putting it to work for you, developing your resilient muscle, 
metaphorically so that you can take these challenges when they come and turn them into a positive. All right, so that's three, and I've got four more things to talk about from a pure training standpoint. But before we get there, I've got a quick ad for you. Again, I want to let you know about my continued partnership with the company called Care Of, where I get my daily vitamins and supplements, particularly my my vitamin D. I'm also taking fish oil as well as ashwagandha, which is a herb that helps with recovery. But I use the the site takecareof.com for this. And I've talked to you about it before. They've extended my partnership through the year. You can still take advantage of this. And so I'm here to remind you about careof.com. Three things I wanted to quickly talk about. First of all, they have high quality products, high quality ingredients, and everything they provide is really transparent in terms of what's inside of it. It's all good for you, clean ingredients that are backed by science. And so you know exactly what you're taking. You know exactly the efficacy and the studies behind everything so that you can make decisions, good decisions about what to put in your body. So that's one reason why I love them. The second is because they have a paint by numbers online quiz where you can go to takecareof.com And if you're not sure about what you want, certainly you can build in anything you know you need already, but then you can also take this short five-minute quiz where you enter your goals and then they give you an output to suggest what you might also add to those daily supplements that they can send you. And when they give you that output, you can then choose from it like a menu of what you want to add to your bundle and they'll give you all the information about each of those things. And then you can pick and choose based on those recommendations from the quiz on what to include in your personal daily packs of vitamins and supplements. Finally, they wanted me to remind you as we celebrate Women's History Month that for women in particular, they also have various things for you to think about as you have different milestones in life. So for example, women who might become pregnant, you can actually go back into the quiz, enter that information, and then it will give you supplements that match with what you might need to support your pregnancy. For those that are aging and dealing with menopause, the same thing would apply there for you. And so you have this opportunity for women and for men to go back through the quiz as you have major life change so that you can update your daily vitamin and supplement packs based on those changes and the site takecareof.com will help you do that. So if you'd like to take advantage of it, if you haven't already, you can go to takecareof.com and use the code ROGUE50, that's R-O-G-U-E, lowercase, five zero. Use the code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. I use them personally for my daily vitamin D and as I mentioned, I've got fish oil and ashwagandha in there for recovery. And I love it because it just makes it easy to get those daily packs in so that I don't forget. So I stay on top of it every single day. So if you'd like to take advantage of it, go to takecareof.com. Use the code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. If you do that, it also supports me through the podcast. So I appreciate it. All right, let's get back to my topic. Let's talk about the four things left. These are all more training related. So number four, again, we've already talked about process orientation, number one, number two, patience, number three, resilience. Number four is make sure that you're continuing to train for shorter and faster work in various chunks of time. Many of you I know who listen are marathoners and half marathoners, and that's great. That's often where our goals lie. But even when you're training for those distances, it's important to remember that you have to train for the short and fast stuff at various times as well. And you want that balance in order to build your ability to run faster at the longer stuff. Because the faster you can run a 5K or the faster you can do a two-mile time trial, the faster you can ultimately run a half marathon, the faster you can run a marathon. And so if you want to build for the long term and 
to find your breakthrough race at the marathon distance, for example, then you need to be working not only the marathon distance, but also the other distances as well in order to optimize the whole system. And so my recommendation for marathoners is that they do one marathon cycle a year, that they do one half marathon cycle a year, and that they do at least one 5K, 10K cycle a year so that you're working the entire spectrum of the range. And there are multiple reasons for that. The biggest that I just mentioned is ultimately so that you can improve speed, which will help you at the longer distances. But there's also an injury-related benefit in that I believe if you're working all of those distances and you're doing it in a balanced way, that it helps you become more resilient physically as well over time. And this is key. And so if you're that person who tends to go from half marathon training cycle to half marathon training cycle or who tends to go from marathon training cycle to marathon training cycle, it's time to take a break from that routine. It's time to make sure you're getting fast at the 5K as well periodically or that you're training for a 10K periodically because, again, the faster you can run those distances, the faster you can run the longer stuff because those... That speed makes you more efficient when you're starting to run slower paces for a longer period of time. And so make sure you're working the full spectrum. And if you haven't done a 5K cycle in a while, it's time. Now, that's not to say that there may not be a time and a place where periodically you might do a back-to-back situation. There might be time when... It makes sense to do a marathon cycle and then another marathon cycle right after that. There is a time and a place for that, certainly. But what I'm saying is on the margin, on the averages over time, if you look across three years of time, for example, then you should have about three marathon cycles, three big half marathon cycles, and three speed cycles over the course of those three years. And they might be sequenced a little bit differently depending on how everything flows and what races might be most relevant to you. But the trend holds is that you're working the full range. And I would say for those that might be training for the short stuff, the 5K and 10K cycle, mostly, I I would say that if you were to extend and do a half or extend maybe and do a marathon, then that's going to help you when you go back down to the shorter and faster stuff as well, because it's going to force you to build volume and particularly long run volume. That's going to build aerobic capacity, which is going to benefit you on the shorter races as well. And so it goes both ways. Not only does the 5k work help the marathoners, but the half marathon or marathon work could help the 5kers, especially over time as they become more experienced as runners. And so that's number Four, make sure you're working the full spectrum, that you're doing speed tracks in addition to half marathon and marathon tracks. Next, let's talk about drills. Let's talk about drills and efficiency. So part of getting faster for the longer races is being more efficient as a runner. I think we often think of getting faster at the marathon or getting faster at the half marathon or even getting faster at the 10K as an exercise in getting faster at being able to grit and bear it, at being able to push, being able to suffer better. And while suffering is certainly part of it, running those distances, 10K and longer especially, is really an efficiency game. It's about making your target paces feel as easy as possible and burn as little energy for as long as possible. And so the goal, if you're trying to run four hours for the marathon, is to be able to run 909 pace per mile as efficiently and smoothly as you can for as long as you can. And developing that skill and efficiency at that pace, that's developed in a few ways that I'll highlight here. I've talked about training for faster stuff because that's a part of it already. 
I've talked about in the Back to Basics episodes doing strides because that's also a part of it. That weekly dose of strides is going to help you be more efficient, which will help you be more efficient over those longer races. And now I'm going to talk about another element, which is doing drills, doing a basic drill routine at least once a week. Personally, I have my runners here in Austin do it before every quality workout right after their warm-up. So they'll warm up, they'll do drills, then they'll do their workout. Drills serve as a dynamic warm-up tool, but they also serve to improve form and efficiency because they break down the movements of the stride into smaller bits, smaller chunks, and help you essentially become better at each of those smaller movements. And so if you're wondering, well, what's a drill? Well, a drill is the stuff you might have done when you were in PE class in fifth grade, which is you're going to do high knees, you're going to do butt flicks, you're going to do skipping, you're going to do side to side, you're going to do what we call karaoke or over and under, you're going to do bounding. And so it's a it's just a simple basic routine that breaks up the movements in the stride into their smaller athletic parts so that you can repeat those in smaller chunks doing drills and ultimately, not in one session, but when you do these repeatedly week after week, year after year, you become more efficient at those movements, which then translates into a more efficient stride, which then translates into your ability to run a certain pace with less energy over the course of a half marathon or marathon. And so doing drills consistently is a big part of building towards a breakthrough. I'll include the list that I have my runners do in the show notes so you can check that out. But you can also find these drills almost anywhere. If you search running drills, you'll find routines that you can replicate on your own doesn't have to be there's no magic set of drills that are out there I like my routine you'll have other coaches give you their routine there's no magic perfect set but if you're doing the standard drills that we that we think about and and coach which includes a bigger subset that often people call into a list of eight to ten if you're doing those things consistently it's going to help you be more efficient which will help you build towards that breakthrough. And I will say, when you start these drills, they're going to, perhaps, if you've never done them, they're going to feel awkward at first because it's a skill. And that awkwardness that you feel in trying to execute a drill, something like a B-skip, for example, if you just look up B-skip, watch a YouTube of somebody doing a B-skip and then try to replicate that on your own, essentially it's also called a pullback so it's basically a skip where you're kicking your leg out in front of you straightening it and then pulling it straight back so it mimics that forward part of your stride and if you try to execute that for the first time you're probably gonna feel silly doing it or it's gonna feel awkward and weird and very rarely do I see someone execute that perfectly on their first time and that's a sign when you have that inefficiency executing any of the drills, that's a sign that you need to work on it and that that inefficiency is likely translating to something in your stride that you're not feeling, some inefficiency in your stride that you're not feeling that will only be helped and improved by doing the drills. So drills, number five. Number six, let's talk about long runs. Let's talk about long runs. And again, this podcast and is really focused on breakthroughs at the half marathon and marathon distance. But I will say that there's probably application for 5k and 10k as well, but primarily for the half marathon and marathon distance. But you can do a couple of things with your long runs that will help you build towards a breakthrough. The first one or part A here is extending the long runs and doing more big long runs. And so I'll talk about marathons, for example, but you'll see that sometimes 
schedules that I see online, you'll see somebody build towards one or two 20-mile runs in a training cycle, sometimes three. Often I don't see more than three in the cookie-cutter cycles that you see out there online. For for us, within our rogue programming, we like to build people up to five or six potentially 20 milers with at least a couple of 22 milers built into that. Sometimes it'll vary depending on what's going on with a specific athlete, but typically we're building towards five or six 20 mile runs with a couple of 22 mile runs. And by extending that long run distance, getting in more long runs that are 20 plus, then that's building that muscular resilience that's going to help you have staying power late in a marathon. And for half marathoners, we might do that many of potentially 16 to 18 mile runs over distance training so that you can build resilience and staying power in the course of a long run. Now, caveat being, this is not for beginners. This is not for that first time marathoner or that first time half marathoner. We'll obviously do fewer of those distance for that person. But but when I'm talking about those that are building towards a breakthrough, you should be doing five to six 20-mile runs in the course of a training cycle for a marathon. And you should be doing 16-mile runs for a half marathon if you want that breakthrough. And the more you can get used to that distance and the more you can execute training cycles over time where you're doing those consistently, then suddenly a 20-mile run will become no big deal And that will put you on a different plane, which will give you different staying power at the end of your race. Doesn't happen overnight, requires a lot of consistent work and being smart about how you build to those longer long runs. But it's absolutely a critical component of building towards a breakthrough is longer long runs and more long, long runs. So that's part A of that. Part B of the long run discussion is making sure that you're building in workouts to your long runs. Typically in the course of a training cycle, we will incorporate about three big long run workouts. Sometimes it'll be more again for that more experienced athlete. Sometimes it'll be less for that less experienced athlete, but somewhere around three big, what we call race prep long runs that will be incorporated for a half marathoner and for a marathoner. And so then the question is, well, what does that look like? It can come in different forms. And I think I've talked about examples previously on this show, but it could be as simple as doing some race pace repeats within the context of your long run, whether that be two mile reps at half marathon pace inside your half marathon long run or it could mean doing marathon reps maybe three mile marathon pace reps inside a marathon workout that would be an example but we also like to do other versions of that where we might mix in some marathon pace with some faster fart licks and then go back to marathon pace to try to simulate by choosing that fart lick in the middle or by doing that fart like in the middle, try to simulate leg fatigue. That's then that's then going to cause you to work harder when you get back to marathon pace. And again, you can look this stuff up online. the The team over there with Ben Rosario and Hoka Naz Elite, I think, is really transparent about the work that they do, and so they're often talking about some of these types of long runs that he will execute with his elites. And I would say that oftentimes you can adapt those to an everyday amateur athlete as well if you have a little bit of context and if you might have a coach that you're working with. And so if you read their blogs and their public data on Final Surge, you can get some insight there. You can also read about it on the book Inside the Marathon, which Scott Fobble published about his build to New York a couple of years back. So make sure you're incorporating longer long runs, more long runs, and then over time, long run workouts so that you're executing race pace or some version of race pace inside your long runs. So again, 
you're building that ability to run race pace when you're tired, just like you would, obviously, on race day itself. So that's number six. Extend those long runs, both with volume and with quality. And then the last one, which you can actually practice with number six, the last one is learn to close a race. Learn and practice closing a race. Optimal race strategy for a half marathon and a marathon, as it's been studied and as it's shown by world record attempts out there, is a negative split race where you finish the second half of the race faster than the first. And part of the training that we just talked about, those long run workouts will help you achieve that. But also I believe you have to practice practice executing a close so that you can believe mentally that you can do it so that it starts to program something in you that, that, makes it second nature to finish out a race strong. And so you want to learn how to close. There's a few different ways we can practice learning how to close. One is within the context of long runs. Sometimes outside of those race prep weekends, we will execute what we call a close or a 20, typically around 20 minute fast finish to a long run where you will progress gradually from easy long run pace every five minutes or so to something a little bit faster and you want to finish those 20 minutes still feeling in control like you can contain the pace like it's not too much for you but that it is obviously faster than your long run pace and so a 20 minute controlled close is one way to practice these sort of fast finishes another way to practice fast fast finishes is by executing practice races or what we call training races. Pick a half marathon in advance of your marathon. Pick a 10K in advance of your half. Maybe even a couple of those opportunities for you to practice the close. And what I like to do in these situations, if it's a race that's not your primary race, is to give yourself a window. Give yourself opportunity and cushion in order to practice that close. So maybe if you're trying to close out a half marathon in training, intentionally start the first five miles a little bit easier than you would perhaps maybe do the first five miles at marathon pace. Then the next five miles about your half marathon pace and then close over the final three miles to get some muscle memory associated with finishing races out strong and fast. Another way you can embed this kind of close mentality is to treat every workout as if it's a progression of some sort. So if you're doing intervals or repeats, you want to start those a little bit slower than your target pace, and then you want to finish and progress as you go through the workout and then finish a little faster than your target pace with control. And if you can do that, if you can execute that type of progression within workouts, if you can execute that type of progression within a practice race, then that will help translate into that type of progression, that type of mentality at the end of the race that matters so that you can build towards that breakthrough. So learn to execute the close. It's that killer mentality at the finish that allows you to bring it home as strong as you can. And there are certainly mental components to that, which I've talked about on other episodes. I won't cover that now. And certainly you got to practice all of that while you're practicing these types of tactics. But I promise you, if you give yourself those opportunities in training and in practice races, it will eventually translate to the race itself so that you can squeeze every single second possible out of your target race and get that breakthrough that you've been targeting. So there you go. That's seven things to think about as you build towards a breakthrough. I'll review them quickly. One, bring a process orientation. Two, have patience. Let the timeline be dictated by the work that needs to be done and not by some artificial deadlines. Three, practice resilience. Four, work the faster distances, the shorter, faster distances. Make sure if you're a marathon or a half marathon, 
marathoner that you're working 5K and 10K distances as well. Number five, incorporate drills into your weekly routine so that you can improve your efficiency, which will translate to the longer races. Number six, extend the long run, both in volume and in quality. And then finally, number seven, learn to close. Learn to finish these races so you can squeeze out every second on the way to your breakthrough. I'm here rooting for you and excited about the potential, especially as we look towards potential races coming, real live races coming here this fall. So that's it. That's it for today's episode. I'll wrap it here as a reminder. If you want to use the code that I mentioned, you can go to takecareof.com, use code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. Otherwise, you can always check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next week, we'll talk to you soon.